good morning, Covenant College. Um, I certainly don't have confidence in my own niceness enough to go up against Dr. Barham, um, but I appreciate Jay's sentiment. So it's always a joy to gather with you in chapel, and I, I just appreciate the opportunity we have to do that. Not many places you, I could be teaching don't have that opportunity. If you have your Bible, you can read along with me from Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 34. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Maker of heaven and earth, we thank you for the opportunity to read your word and encounter your son together. I ask that through the aid of your Holy Spirit, the words of my mouth, and the thoughts of our hearts would be pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So we shouldn't love money. That's my basic point. And if you've been a Christian long, you know this. You've heard it before. I've been a Christian all my life in the sense of growing up in the church. And I've certainly heard all the bad things the Bible has to say about money. And I have, as Jay mentioned, Dr. Green mentioned, a four-year-old son, and as an economist, I'm, of course, interested in helping him learn to use money well and think well about money. And Noah has a piggy bank, and he puts his pennies and the occasional dime he finds on the street into his piggy bank. And his great financial aspiration, if you were to ask him, is to buy a box of tricolor pasta at Aldi. <laughs> it's true. So I feel like he's doing well. And then one night, when we're having our economic story time, which he asks for before he goes to bed, <laughs> I'm telling him about money, thinking uh, this night I would tell a story about how you work and you receive payment and how it's good to give some of that back to the church in a thankfulness toward God for what he's given us. And my son stops me. He says, that's not good. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, if I give God some of my pennies, he might want all of them, 
and then I wouldn't be able to buy any pasta, and I would starve. <laughs> I must admit, I was surprised. He's four, and I'm already behind on the love of money thing with him. In fact, he's already exhibiting two of the three types of money love I was planning on talking to you all about today. As an exercise, you could try diagnosing him after this talk is done. The conversation with my son reminds me that it's a very natural thing, this money love, for us. It's, even for those of us who know it's bad, it's difficult to fight. This isn't something new. We know this. I'm just here hoping to remind you and encourage you to continue to struggle against the love of money. The love of money is so deeply embedded in the shape of our culture and calls so effectively to the brokenness in our hearts that we must continually lean against it. Recall, the Bible says the love of money and riches are deceitful. We must be suspicious of our relationship with money. What is it, though, that we really love when we love money? Economists have a thing they like to say, which is that money isn't real, which just means that the actual token that we use for money isn't usually that desirable in and of itself. So as a Christian and economist, I often think about what is it that I love when I love money? And conveniently, for giving a talk in this context, there are three types or functions of money that economists usually talk about, and they are each three make money useful to us, and they're helpful as we cooperate together in a complex society. And it's appropriate to appreciate the ways that money is helpful. But I'll argue that each function of money also presents a temptation to idolize money in pursuit of a dangerous craving of our fallen flesh. In each case, the Holy Spirit calls and enables us to encounter healing in Jesus and enact a healthier relationship with money by participating in his body, the church. The first useful function of money is as a store of wealth. By saving up money, we can carry purchasing power with us over time. Having money on hand helps us manage when our car breaks down, and accumulating money is part of how we plan for the future, perhaps the purchase of a house or retirement. The ability of money to do this is one of the reasons it is useful to us. But this characteristic often tempts us to love money. So what does it look like to love money's ability to store wealth? Well, the character I think of when I think about this is Scrooge McDuck from DuckTales. I don't know how many of you, it's an old cartoon, I'm dating myself a little bit, but it's a great one, and I encourage you to watch it. Who's seen it? Who's seen DuckTales? Okay, fair amount. So if you remember Scrooge McDuck, he keeps his money in a giant vault, multi-story vault, full of money, and he likes to swim around in it. Right? He loves his money, and I would argue that what he loves about his money is that it gives him a sense of security. His vault full of money is his defense against whatever the future might hold. He has accomplished the dream of becoming independently wealthy. Independently. How revealing that word is. When seen in this light, money promises us independence, the ability to guarantee through our own assets our safety and comfort in the midst of an uncertain world. Upon reflection, we see it isn't the money itself that we love, it's the way money appears to be such an effective way of controlling our future. This craving is one that has plagued humanity for millennia, and our Lord is aware of it. In the passage I read earlier, we encounter Jesus addressing this very issue when he tells us about the rich farmer saying to himself, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Relax. 
you have secured yourself and are independent of circumstances. Yet the reality is that his existence has never been more in peril than at this moment. He is about to come before God, and all his wealth will not do anything to aid him. In fact, as a reflection of his lack of generosity toward God, it will stand behind him as an accusation. Instead of focusing on our provision for ourselves, we need to hear Jesus say, Do not be anxious about your life, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? When we think about our future, I believe that many of us will find ourselves spending a great deal of time meditating upon how much progress we are making toward acquiring the right amount of money, the money we need to establish the comfortable future we imagine for ourselves. While we will probably expend comparatively little effort considering all the ways that Jesus is seeking to create a new life in us. As we are on guard against the danger of this form of money love, scripture has given us a practice to aid us, and that's generosity. In their excellent book, Practicing the King's Economy by Rhodes, Holt, and Fickert, they identify the importance of generosity in this context by saying, quote, giving casts down money from the throne of our hearts. When we release our grip on money, we free up our hearts for worship and our hands for work in God's kingdom. When we give, the Spirit inhabits our generosity and works to reshape us in the image of our generous God. End quote. In every act of generosity, we can weaken the influence of our desire to seize control of our future. Especially as we give to our local church, we can affirm that our future security is not defined by our independence, but by our commitment to be fully a part of the community that God has given us at the cost of Jesus' blood. The second function of money is as the medium of exchange. Money is the thing that can buy you anything else. Everyone finds money useful because it can be used to attain any particular thing we desire. Especially in our current culture, this aspect of money makes it very hard not to love it. We have a culture that constantly tells us that a central part of our lives is consumption. We are told over and over again that the right combination of stuff and experiences can make us happy. Drink the best coffee, travel to the most interesting places and post the pictures on Instagram, subscribe to the most responsible CSAs, participate in the coolest social scene. You can do all of it with enough money. When I think about this type of money love, I think of Tony Stark, Iron Man, or Bruce Wayne, Batman. It's important to keep in mind we love money this way not just because it seems to allow us to control our own happiness through buying the stuff that makes us feel good. That's part of it. But in this light, money also appears to promise us that if we have enough of it, we can create our own meaning. If we are rich enough, we can live the ideal life, perhaps as a scholar, in a woodland cabin with the perfect library, or a traveling environmental activist, or maybe even a hero with cool gadgets who fights crime. I'll let you decide which of those is mine. It is very hard for us not to think 
that money is that thing which gives us the power to control our happiness, both in general and particular. With enough money, we can pursue happiness on our own terms. At its heart, this is money tapping into the desire to do what is right in our own eyes. This is a desire that isn't new. It's a theme that recurs throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus addresses this powerfully in the parable of the prodigal. Most vividly in the younger son, but also in the older, we see the dangerous outcome of defining happiness in one's own terms and using the father's resources to pursue that conception of happiness rather than resting in the father's love and authority. In the passage today, we see the rich farmer responding to his bumper crop by concluding that it's time to eat, drink, and be merry. Our culture tells us a story that puts us in control of our happiness if we have enough money. I believe this message also creates a great deal of fear and anxiety in us as we think about our identity. Because the more we accept the message that who we are and our happiness is dependent on our own crafting it based on things we have to buy, the more we come to believe that it depends on us, our meaning and our happiness, and that if we don't figure it out, no one is there to do it for us. If we don't look out for our own happiness, no one else will. And this fear reinforces our self-centeredness. Ultimately, we are not able to create happiness and meaning for ourselves, and this approach to money will always fail us. We'll spend ourselves in vain pursuits that end up harming ourselves, our families, and our community. Instead of this focus on achieving happiness for ourselves, Jesus calls us to consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Notice that Jesus isn't just talking about some bare minimum sackcloth type of clothing. His reference is to the beauty of a flower, a beauty that catches the eye, that inspires wonder. He refers to the glory of Solomon, a glory which brought the great from far and wide to admire and gain wisdom. He says that we will be clothed even more than this by our Heavenly Father who loves us. How could any life we make for ourselves out of our own resources ever compare to this. As we seek to rest in the beauty and fulfillment of the life our Father is creating in us through Jesus, we do need to remember that the culture around us is constantly drawing us away from this and toward a love of money. I do have a recommendation for active resistance. It's not a happy, friendly word for most of us. It's fasting. In particular, fasting from the use of money to make us happy. The message of our culture on this point is particularly emphasized during the holiday season that's coming upon us. And this would be a perfect time to step back and consciously choose to spend less money on that which we habitually purchase out of desire, not genuine need. But don't make this just a fasting from things. Advent is a wonderful time to make it a fasting for a greater purpose. As you fast from controlling your own happiness, through what you buy. Instead, pour yourself into those around you, loving people, especially in your local church. Direct your efforts to experience meaning and joy by taking the place in your church 
that you have been gifted to fill in this season of your life. Your true meaning is found there. You are God's workmanship, and he has prepared wonderful things for you to do with your life. But they are found in Jesus, not your own priorities. Jesus gave everything so that we might participate in his body through the Holy Spirit. Let us not permit the distracting appeal of things we have to pay for cause us to leave this gift Jesus has paid for unopened. The final characteristic of money is that it is what economists call a unit of account. And this just means that when our community thinks about what something is worth, what its value is, we think in terms of dollars. That would be the answer we would give to the question of what is this worth? Or how much is that worth? What do you make? We give it in terms of dollars. And this feature of money, in combination with markets, is a central element of how our economy works. The way our economy is able to produce monetary value for so many aspects of our lives is the glue that holds our decentralized society together. This is what we're doing when we create prices for coffee, education, health care, or labor, and everything else. Comparing prices becomes a significant part of how we make choices about all sorts of things in our lives. We end up using monetary value as a shortcut when evaluating our options, and it becomes one of the driving forces in our behavior individually and as a community. My favorite example of this sort of money love is found in Star Trek, uh, an alien race called the Ferengi. Um, they are not very attractive looking, and they've built their entire social individual and religious life around the love of money, especially as a way to make value judgments. They believe that when they die, they must appear before the blessed exchequer, who will do a full accounting of their lives to see whether or not they've made a profit. And if they haven't made a profit with their lives, then they are banished to the vault of eternal destitution. If they have made a profit, then they have the opportunity to use that in an auction to bid on their new life the best life they can afford. So this is a little extreme, the Ferengi perspective, but it does remind us that we need to be aware that there are problems for us that stem from this form of money love. First, we have a strong tendency to engage in comparison and evaluation, and money is very effective at giving life to that tendency. At its extreme, we start to think that the value of a job, or even worse, the person doing it, is reflected in the salary. We start to judge people's choices by the monetary outcome. I think of the way I've heard people criticized because they spent money on a good education like this one and then they aren't doing anything with it, meaning the work they're doing doesn't pay enough money to justify it. Or perhaps you've overheard someone else on their way to Chow wondering about how much money Chow is going to help them make in their lives. This same sort of money love enters our conversations about creation. When we value a species or an ecosystem based on the monetary value of its services to humanity. The truth is that we really like having a clear guide to our decisions and easy measures of success. Even better when using this guide helps us get more for our money so we can increase our consumption or when it helps us save money to promote our future security. If we're not careful, we will find our vision of the successful life to be defined by monetary success. The unsettling truth is that monetary value is a guiding force in our personal and communal lives, and it is reinforced by and reinforces the other two kinds of money love I've just discussed. 
Now, I do want to be clear. I'm an economist. I think markets are great. They're very important. Money is necessary. We need these things in a complex society. We can't do without them. They are very useful social tools. But any tool used uncritically can become dangerous. How much more careful must we be when the tool is used to guide such a large number of our decisions about our lives? We must remember that we use markets to assign monetary value. And when we do this, we are simply adding up all the various opinions of the people who are participating in that market. There is no special transcendent wisdom in this system. Monetary value is just the sum of human wisdom, and human wisdom is often faulty. How much is a sparrow worth? Jesus tells us in his times that five sparrows sold for two pennies. So a sparrow is worth about half a penny. Sparrows are cheap. Sparrows aren't worth very much. But Jesus goes on to say that not one of them is forgotten before God. It's a remarkable thing to look at a bird and to think that the creator and king of the universe knows it. It makes me wonder in what sense can we say that such a creature is worth less than a penny? How real is that monetary evaluation? We need to be careful. Perhaps more convincingly, we can recall what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans, where he says that one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right here, we have Paul reminding us that our life is based on an act of Jesus that human wisdom would never have approved. No one would value sinners, the enemy, enough to die for them. Will human valuation accurately reflect God's true judgment? God's wisdom sees more than we do. Left to human wisdom, we are lost. While monetary value is an important consideration in decisions, it mustn't be the final word. The blind pursuit of monetary value will lead us to miss God's call for ourselves and our communities. It reinforces a narrow, selfish vision which Satan uses to destroy us and our world. We are called to faithfulness to the wisdom of God revealed in Christ, which often contradicts that of the world. Fortunately, we are granted a regular opportunity to remember this. Every time we come to the Lord's table in our local church, we are called to humble ourselves, to acknowledge our sin, to see ourselves as the fools we are apart from God's help. It reminds us that we are called to value our brothers and sisters in Christ the way Christ does, not as our fallen eyes would be inclined to do. As we do this, it will shape us to be less influenced by the wisdom of the world, which is focused on using worldly treasure for ourselves and more focused on the love of Christ, which gives all for his people and his creation. Of course, all of this sort of idolatry isn't new. As explained in Practicing the King's Economy, idolatry in the Old Testament times was an economic issue as well. To quote their book, the primary attachment to Baal wasn't a pretty statue, it was an economic promise. For the nations around Israel, Baal was the rider of the clouds who brought the rains and blessed the earth. When Baal showed up, the heavens rained oil, the rivers ran with honey. In the way money, <coughs> sorry, end quote. In the way money taps into our desire to manage our future through an instrumental relationship, it's very similar to that idolatry uh, in the Old Testament. But in a way, the love of money goes even further. At least the idolatry in the Old Testament maintained an acknowledgement that we depended on something beyond ourselves. 
But one of the most dangerous things about money is that money suggests to us that we can become independent of circumstances, our community, and of God. While it's not worthy to be called a sequel, today's talk does complement that given by Dr. Medweme last week. And I encourage you to go back and watch it if you weren't here for it. And I submit to you that money can be one of Satan's most powerful tools to reinforce our sense of moral autonomy and our anxiety about our identity. But it isn't really the piece of paper or the coin that is the problem. Money allows our cravings to so easily lead us astray because it seems to provide a way to achieve our goals based on our values. It's an opportunity to do what is right in our own eyes. As we gaze at money, the truth Jesus wants us to hear is that the more our desire to secure our future, control our happiness, and achieve worldly success drives a love of money, the less we focus on the Father's sovereign care and the more we focus on our own strength, which is a path to a life which is anxious and narrow. And as we do this, we will miss the often uncomfortable, hard to predict, and life that is incompatible with the judgments of the world. But it is a life that is far more secure, full of meaning, and concordant with God's ongoing crea creative activity in us, the church, and our world. Now in closing, I read once more, um, or actually the first time, this charge to us all from the Lord. Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.